0: Hello and welcome to All There Is. I'm your host, Kelly Bargabas. Today we have one of our Keep It Real episodes where I talk to real people with real stories living a very real life. It's been a while since I've posted one of these episodes and I'm really excited to be doing this one today. If you don't know this, November is pre Awareness Month. November 17th is World Prematurity Day. And so today, we have a conversation with a young woman named Diana Seymour, and we're going to hear from Diana about her own experience with a premature birth. Now, just to give you some statistics before we get into it, according to the CDC, 1 in 10 babies are born preterm or before completing the normal 37 to 40 weeks of pregnancy, and that's in the United States. So 10% of births, 10% of babies are born too soon. And these babies miss out on important growth and development that happens in the final weeks in the womb, of course. And premature birth is the leading cause of infant mortality. And even the babies who do fight and survive can have short and long-term health problems. They can have problems with their brain and their eyesight and their lungs and and ramps up those risk factors for all kinds of health problems. And then again, they can also survive and have Little to no long-term challenges. So there's a really wide range of uh, risk that babies who are born early come into this world with. Babies who are born early like this, of course, come into the world with more obstacles, more challenges. They come in behind the eight ball. they've They've got a tougher road just to get, back to baseline, right? So I think it's important for us, if you haven't been impacted by that, to be aware of that, that 400,000 babies are born early in the United States every year and start out this way, start out life fighting. And also, I want to point out before we get into this, that there are racial and ethnic disparities that persist. And in 2015, the rate of preterm birth among African-American women was about 50 percent higher than the rate of preterm birth among white women. We know that there's issues with access and equity in our healthcare systems, and there's some real gaps for people of color traditionally in our countries. So it's important to also set that perspective and view as we head into this issue. Right. And, you know, we don't understand all the reasons why some babies are born too soon. And I don't really want to get into. Whether mothers are doing things right or wrong, and I'm using air quotes as I say those words, because I think too much in our society, when something goes wrong in a woman's life, whether it's with their babies or with their bodies or, you know, whatever it is, we tend to look for reasons to blame the woman, like it must have been her fault. And I don't want to go there because I I think a woman could be doing everything right to be healthy and have a healthy pregnancy and things could still go wrong you know, we just don't know everything. And then, of course, there could be pregnant women who aren't being as careful and maybe are involved with some risk factors or maybe don't have the access or the uh, equity in their prenatal care. And yet everything can go right. So I'm just not going to get into the factors of what's to blame or who's to blame. It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, one in 10 babies are born too soon. And that's what we need to talk about. Okay. Also in full disclosure, I've known and loved Diana her entire life since she is my firstborn niece. She's been one of the greatest gifts in my life. And it has truly been an honor for me to love her and watch her grow from a baby into a strong, independent woman. And of course, because she is my niece, I had a front row seat when this story was unfolding in our family, but only as an outsider looking in. You know, she was really so much on this journey alone and her mom was there with her every step of the way. But even with that, I just feel like, you know, sometimes when you're in a crisis like this, there's there's just you and you have to fight the battle. And I cannot begin to imagine or put into words how it feels to go through something like this as a young mother, which is why I have Diana here to tell us in her own words. So thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you learned something. Well, hi, Diana. Hi. Thanks for joining me on All There Is. I'm super excited to have you here today since you are one of my favorite people. Diana Seymour is here. And in full disclosure, she is my firstborn niece. So I've known her and loved her for a very, very long (laughs) time. And she's got an amazing, compelling story. November is National Prematurity Awareness Month. And I just learned this because Diana posted something on Facebook a week or two ago when the month started. And I wanted to have her as a guest on this show because she has a real life personal story about the premature birth that she had with her firstborn daughter, Lila Patricia. Is it okay if I say her name? It is. Uh, Okay, good. So anyway, November is National Prematurity Awareness Month or or Premi Awareness Month. And it's an opportunity for us to learn and become aware. Um, Maybe this has touched your life personally. Maybe it hasn't. Either way, it's happening, whether we know about it or not. And I think if we can all share in this human experience, it makes the world a little bit of a smaller place and connects us all in a really deep and meaningful way. So I think this is an opportunity to reflect. I know when, when I was getting ready for this, of course, my life was touched because of your daughter who was, was born premature, but I still didn't really know any of the the statistics that one in 10 babies are born premature in the United States. So 10% of all babies are born preterm in the United States. And, you know, we're a very developed country and yet we still struggle with this. And that's about 400,000 babies that are born early every year in this country. And also that African-American women have about a 50% higher rate of preterm birth, which is a staggering statistic. But regardless of, of all those um, statistics, there are real people And real stories behind all those numbers. And today we have the great opportunity to hear one of those stories. So I'm going to let Diana do most of the talking on here. And we're going to just dive right into this. And I want Diana to start by, can you tell us what is your story? What happened? So
1: I think a lot of people, when they are sitting down to hear this story, they think it starts on the day Lila was born. But really, the more I sit back and reflect on it, it started before that because my pregnancy with her was not really um, I use normal loosely, but it wasn't normal at all. Even from the beginning, I was so ill and my weight gain was or rather lack of weight gain was a problem. So even before we really knew how bad things were going to get with her prematurity, I was already in the high risk clinic, seeing the high risk doctors. They were like, you know, a lot of things just aren't right. Like we're not liking these tests. So we were in the high risk doctor every week, getting a sonogram, which was already. So that's kind of really where it started. Mm. And then one, the last week I went in there. They were just basically like, you know, she really has stopped growing. She's not getting any nutrients from your body. As far as we can tell, we're not really sure what's going to happen. We need to monitor you more closely to be safe. They wanted me to go right to the hospital. From the doctors and i was like well if i'm going to be in the hospital for three more months you know optimistic thinking oh i'm going to carry this pregnancy to term i'll just go in and be monitored i said i want to go home first i want one more night at home i want to go home do laundry pack my stuff clean bring what i want not forget anything so i did i went home did all that stuff and then the next morning i went to the hospital And I was only there two days before my abruption happened. So abruption is when the placenta comes right off the uterine wall. So it just like disconnects. It can be partial. I guess in some people it could be a little bit or it can be like a full abruption. Mine was a full abruption. So I'm just sitting there in the hospital chatting with my mom and I started bleeding and I thought, okay, that's not normal. Showed my mom. She went out and got the nurse and that was it. We were right up. To labor and delivery. They said, okay, we're going into the OR. You know, this is it. Call who you want to call to be here. And then after that, it's, you know, okay, so this is what you're looking at in terms of risk factor. She's gonna be so tiny. She could be blind. We don't know mental retardation-wise, which she could have, you know, she may never speak. I'm telling you, don't expect her to cry when she's born. You're you know, they never make noise this little, all this stuff they tell you. So you're going in there like, geez. And, you know, they, it's hard to say exactly. I don't know. It's it's fuzzy, obviously a lot of stuff going on. So those few minutes are fuzzy, but when she was actually born, she did make noise. She like, I wouldn't say it was a cry, but it wasn't a squeak either. It was more powerful than a squeak. It was like a, I don't know, just like a, I'm here. Like you can hear me. I know you can't see me, but you can hear me. Mm. So that was a really nice moment to hear that but I wasn't able to hold her or anything. They just took her away. That was it. So then she's gone and I'm in recovery. And I was actually very happy. I was very happy at that moment. Um, I knew somewhat, you know, that it was a very risky place to be in, but I'm like, she made noise. I feel great. She's here. I was also thinking, you know, nobody's come down to tell me bad news. So must be things are okay, Hmm. And you're only in recovery for a couple hours, I guess. And then after that, me and her father went up to see her and we still weren't able to hold her, but we were like, you know, we could touch her and just look at her and it's a lot to take in. You know, they're trying to tell you she's hooked up to machines and it was this one machine she was on. It was very noisy. It was called an oscillator. It's like a ventilator basically. um, As far as I know. And it was just so loud. And I remember that that was a big thing. I'm just like, oh, my God, this machine is so loud, you know, And mm. but this is it was just crazy to see all these things on such a tiny little body. Right. How just, how big was she? She was one pound and four ounces. Wow. And She was only 12 inches long, you know, spread out. But obviously, when you saw her with their little legs curled up, it just looks <laughs> like a little ball of. I don't know, skin, like it was well, just one,
0: like one pound. I was thinking about that today too. It's like a pound of butter. We know like what a pound of butter, how big right. that is. She fit in the palm of your hand.
1: If you look at the pictures and you can even see it in the pictures,
0: her body, you could,
1: you know, her body was like translucent. You could see every mm. rib, you could see veins, you could see everything. Mm. It was, it wasn't even, I mean, it, it looks like a baby. But it's, you know, not what you're expecting to see when you have a baby.
0: And yet you were still happy, probably because you had so much stress. Do you think it was because you had such a stressful pregnancy up to that point that you were just happy to actually have your baby surviving outside your body?
1: Probably. Yeah, probably some of it was. I think a lot of it, too, had to be like the hormones, right? I still went through labor. Mm hmm. So there was still a lot of just those regular labor hormones when you just have a baby. Like I wasn't bonding with my baby. I didn't have her there breastfeeding with me, but I was still just happy. Like I was, I was joking with the doctors.
0: How long did that happiness last? Or did at some point you have like a holy shit moment? I mean, that
1: little bliss definitely lasted into the night. I remember after everything calming down, you know, me calling my good friend, Sarah, and i was on the phone with her just like bragging like oh my god she made noise and you should see her and you know going on and on and on and lilas father was like like you should you need to go to sleep you literally like just had your body cut open like go to sleep and i'm like but i just like just couldn't i was just happy mm-hmm. um but that all definitely changed when i was discharged from the hospital you know you're only in there a couple days after a C-section and the hospital was great. They gave me an extra day or whatever, you know, they do what they had to do because I didn't want to go home. Mm. So they, I even think maybe I stayed an extra day somehow they finangled it, but that was very hard going home.
0: So my next question was, what was the hardest part of all this? Definitely with- going home. Yeah. Without your baby.
1: Yeah. That was really hard. Um, going home every day was hard, but that first day, well, not really. It was my last day in the hospital, but the first day of that next journey of now I'm, you know, I'm out of the hospital, but my baby is still there. It was a whole nother journey now, but going up there to end the part of me being there, the doctor who was in there with Lila, he just, he wasn't my favorite doctor. And that had nothing to do with the information he was giving me. And he did his job. He told me, you know, what I was looking at in terms of risk factors and, you know, don't get too hopeful. And, we still know very little and you know that when you're about to walk away and drive home is like the last thing you want to hear Mm. you're leaving your baby with essentially strangers to go home and like sit there and what think about your baby so it's like that was very very hard I remember like driving home and being so upset and my dad calling me and I just couldn't even pick up the phone because I just couldn't even talk I was so upset Mm. that was the hardest for sure
0: I bet. Now this is going to seem like a weird question, but is there anything that you loved about the experience? You know, when you look back on it now, is there anything that you look back on fondly?
1: Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of experiences that I had in there that I never would have got if she had been a baby who came home right after birth, because I built friendships in there. I'm still friends with some of those women I met in there today, you know, Mm -hmm. And that's something I never would have had. And even just, I learned a lot. I thought after all the babysitting and siblings I had, I thought I knew what it was to take care of a baby, but then you're thrown a very high maintenance baby. And it's like, oh my God. All right. So this is a whole nother meaning. Like this is dedication coming here, doing all this. It's nice that it was my first experience having a child. I feel because it just had me look at it in a whole different way. It's hard. It's kind of hard to put into words, Mm -hmm. but that is a fond memory for me thinking back of on the good stuff, the baths, bath times. I used to love going in for bath times, you know, Mm -hmm. and the nurses, we could do it. You don't have to. And I'm No, I want to, I want to do the bath, you know, and just everything going in every day. Oh, she gained one ounce or she gained half of an ounce. It's like, it's such a big deal. Mm -hmm. And all those moments are celebrated. So those are all good memories.
0: I can remember sometimes when we had to have her poop. And so there was like a whole prayer chain going on outside of the hospital that, you know, Lila needs to poop and we all need to up our prayers. So she right like (laughs) and it was
1: such a big deal when she pooped, like all the nurses knew the doctors like it was the news of the day, like she pooped and it's just everything was celebrated. So it's hard to not have good memories when they do celebrate yeah, little and, achievements
0: and all that camaraderie. Yeah, you're right. I guess yeah. all babies poop, right? They eat and they poop. They eat and they poop. That's all they do. Right. But when you have a baby who is fighting for her very survival, And those little things about gaining an ounce or eating whatever she was eating, drinking her milk or pooping, just they become life or death almost like it's Uh it was critical. Like she had to poop so that we knew her systems were working correctly. I would imagine. I don't know. I don't know all the technical. I just was another one one was
1: like um, maintaining her body temperature was a big thing, you know? Mm. So she would meet all these milestones that I knew she needed to meet. I know she needed to gain weight. I knew she needed to be able to eat on her own to go home and all this stuff. So you meet these couple milestones and then you're like, all right, doc, like, what are we looking at? When are we ready to go home? They're like, well, she still can't maintain her body temperature. Mm. It's like, geez, like that, like who even thinks of that? Right. You don't
0: think of that normally. Right. So naturally, right? For right, you know, full term babies or even us as we go throughout our daily lives, like that's something that our body and our brains just do for us and we don't think Mm -hmm. too much about it until you get hot flashes and then becomes a whole nother thing. But that's not today's (laughs) podcast. Um, okay. So what was your greatest lesson that you learned? I think that one of the greatest lessons was
1: to appreciate all the little things. We did pray for the smallest things that when they did happen it was like, wow, okay, this happened. Now what's next? Like, it just kind of, it also made things like the next thing exciting. Like when she finally got to be in her open crib, it's like, oh my God, one more step towards going home, you know? So all those felt like accomplishments to me, even Mm -hmm. though it was, she did the work, you know, I'm just there supporting it, supporting her body, but they all felt like my accomplishments really.
0: Mm, That's interesting. I like that. And Spoiler alert to all of our listeners. Lila, she's a miracle because she's going to be 10 next month. So, you know, she did survive and thrive and she's thriving today at 10 years old. When you look at Lila today, do you ever have moments where you look at her and flashback or, you know, what goes through your mind when you look at Lila today at almost 10 years old? You know, somebody recently asked me this because I posted that
1: thing on Facebook about, you know, premature awareness month. And somebody asked me, like, you know, when you look at her, do you think about all those struggles? And I really don't. I look at her and it, I don't know. I don't know if I, it's just because I take it for granted or because I see her every day or because she is just so perfect and amazing that you would never know. Like if you just met her off the street. Right. You would never know. You would never know she had all these struggles and all these, you know, warning signs and went through all these therapies and like, you would never know. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, obviously when you sit here and you talk about it, or when we look through old pictures or she starts asking me questions, I'm like, oh geez, you know, when you sit down and you think about it, it's like, wow, like we really were lucky. That's what Mm -hmm. I think about when I do sit and think about the whole situation. Is how lucky mm-hmm. because like one out of ten, I didn't even know that statistic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one out of ten is just probably survival, not thriving. Mm-hmm. And she is thriving
0: now. When she did come home from the NICU, what kind of
1: health challenges did she have? She had to always be on oxygen twenty four seven. She also was supposed to be on like a um, a heart monitor that, like, if her they used to say if she'll desat, so like if her heart rate would drop or if like her oxygen levels would drop. They always were monitoring these when she first came home, but she never, ever had a problem. She even, she would rip her um, like leads for her monitor off. She would just rip them off in the middle of the night and me and her dad would have no idea. And we'd wake up, you know, an hour or so later and she'd be laying there with nothing attached to her. And we're like, oh my God. But like, she was good. Mm. And she did the same thing with her oxygen. She would just pull her oxygen off her face all the time. All the time. And we would tell the doctor and he's just like, you know, well, if she seems fine, then I guess just kind of see what happens if she pulls it off and she's doing okay, let it go. So we did. So she just, it was like, she knew when she needed to get rid of this stuff. She was just taking it off, trying to pull it off, taking it away. She knew what she needed to get rid of. And she was done by the time she was nine months old. She was off everything. Wow. Oxygen and everything. It was seemed like a long road while we were in it. But now looking back, what's nine months? You know what I mean? Right. Compared to 10 years. What is nine months?
0: Right. It's nothing. Yeah. Looking back, it does seem like such a short period of time. And Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't even going through it. I was going through it on the outside on the fringe looking in and it felt like a lot longer than nine months. Yeah. You know, just always praying for her, worrying about her, praying for her, worrying about her, worrying about you. And, um, yeah, it's amazing, too, how now that we have all that distance between the crisis and today, 10 years, she really is a miracle. When it comes to national premium awareness, the March of Dimes, obviously, is probably the most well-known and biggest organization that is out there advocating for awareness. How do you think it can help? I think the biggest way it helps would just be support
1: with the families. You know, when I first had Lila, I didn't realize I knew so many people who had experiences with premature babies. But then once you have one and people are like, oh yeah, you know, your cousin, so-and-so or so-and-so here, or that person's friend. It's like, oh, holy cow. I didn't realize, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? There's so many success stories that I think that's important when you're going through it to know people like Lila are out there. Mm-hmm. You know, survive it and thrive.
0: And you talked about helping the families. You know, obviously, when the crisis is going on, like I said, I you know I can remember when you were going through it, and you were really in it. Even though Lila's dad was there with you, and your mom was there with you, so much of it you had to fight on your own because you know they didn't let just anybody in the NICU. So right. I, I know your your mom, who's a nurse, snuck, snuck her way in there. She was able mm-hmm. to get in there, but most of the time, you know, it was you in there by yourself fighting this battle. Right. And yeah, you know, all we did was pray, you know, and I don't want to say all we did because that is important, but I can remember praying every single day for Lila and recruited everybody. I knew my, my neighbor's mother, who was an an older woman at the time, she had to be in her eighties, grew up Catholic her whole life. And just prayed for Lila every single day and always asked about her. And Lila had so many people in her corner praying and wishing her well. But what what else do you think people can do to support the family or to help? Especially, I'm sure not everyone has a big extended family. Not everybody has resources or access. You know, what can people do to help?
1: There was a lot of times being up there where people would just like drop off artwork that just like had your baby's name on it that you could like put on their little bed or some hats or just like the cutest little random things that you wouldn't think like would even make a difference but when you're sitting in there all day listening to these machines listening to this beeping listening to whatever and then you show up one day and there's this pretty little thing on her bed that says lila and you're just like oh my god who would do that you know just stuff like that really always brighten my day up there And it happened a lot. I still have keepsakes that I have no idea who made them. But when I see them, it's, you know, something that takes me back to that time with her in the NICU. There is also here in Syracuse, there was the Ronald McDonald House, Mm -hmm. which like, you know, unfortunately up here where we live in Syracuse, this one NICU is it for like a lot of counties. So lucky for me, I only lived 15 minutes from the hospital, but a lot of these people lived five, six hours away and couldn't come every day couldn't afford to come and stay in a hotel you know there's nowhere for them to go so there was this ronald mcdonald house and this is where these families would stay while their babies were in the hospital and that ran on donations so something like that donating to something local or Mm -hmm. something to financially support the families because if your baby's sick in the hospital i mean and this is for any sick babies not just premature babies but what parent would rather work I think most parents would prefer to sit with their kid and help them through it. And it's not possible to do that and work in our world a lot of
0: time. Those are really good points. I love those ideas. And you never know, you know, how those small little things can just touch somebody's heart or just can be a gesture to let someone know that, you know, even though they don't know you personally, that they care that you're going through this crisis and, you know, they care about your baby and Those are some really awesome ideas, taking little gifts to the NICU, knitting hats, knitting blankets, Yeah, and of course, fundraising. I think that is a big part of this awareness campaign. And you even talked about how, you know, your hardest day was leaving your baby behind at the hospital with strangers, which I can't even imagine. But then, like you said, imagine not even living in the same town and you have to drive I don't know, a couple hundred miles to go home and maybe not come back for a week or two. That has to be just extremely difficult, so those yeah, are some really. That. Yeah, those are some really good ideas. So Diana, you wrote an essay about your time during this nine-month period with Lila, and I would love for you to read it so people could hear about your experience and your voice. All right, here we go.
1: Lila. you were always many. Doctors always said she's small. She's not growing properly. Something must be wrong. Warnings started. Uncertainty started. Appointments of doctors trying to ease my mind of the very worries they put in my head. I never once doubted you. You were part me, strong and independent, and part your father, smart and determined. That day, the doctor said, you must go to the hospital. We don't know what's going to happen, was intolerable. I couldn't understand why you weren't growing. Why can't I make you perfectly amazing like you should be? Off to the maternity ward. Two days I sat. Two days I thought about how much time I was wasting. Three months was the sentence going in, but you had other plans. That night, December 10th, 2011, I'll never forget sitting there talking to your Grammy when suddenly the bleeding started. Nurses rushed in, assessed, and off to labor and delivery we went. Three months early. It took some time for me to realize the severity of our situation. As both of our lives were slowly slipping away. In the short time it took for family to arrive, I felt love, love like never before. And that's when I knew I wasn't only fighting for you and I. I was fighting for Grammy and Dada. I was fighting for Uncle Hayes, who set up his friends and a night at the casino to be by my side. Doctors warned me, don't be surprised if she doesn't cry. They rarely do this early. Yet, when they took you from my womb, you screamed. I heard you. I heard my Lila. As if you were saying, I'm going to be okay, Mama and Dada. Those two hours in the recovery room were the longest two hours of my life. Family came in and out to hear my story of you being born. Doctors came in to warn me of the possibilities pertaining to your health. Retardation, eye problems, lung problems, you name it, they were warning me about it. It was finally time to go see your face. There you were, one pound, four ounces, 12 inches long, so tiny, and yet the most wonderful thing I had ever seen. Looking back, I'm glad you were my first. Had I truly known the depths of my undying love for you at that very moment, I don't know how I would have kept it together. But there we were, me, you, and Dada, amazed by how big our hands looked next to your little body. After visiting, it was time to rest. After all, I did just have major surgery. Only once I got to my room, I was so overwhelmed with joy, I couldn't sleep. I called Sarah to brag about how adorable you were. Your dad made me stop talking and rest. He knew I would need it except he was wrong. My body and mind were confused. Why am I not with her? How can I sleep knowing you're so tiny and alone? In the middle of the night, a nurse came into the room. I had to convince her I could walk to the bathroom only 12 hours after my surgery so she could remove my catheter. I needed to go see my Lila, the most pain I had ever felt in my life. It must have taken me 40 minutes for a walk that should have taken five. I'll never forget the determination I had to go see you. When it was time for me to go home without you, I was broken. Your Grammy and the NICU nurses tried to hold me together. I never would have imagined how helpless and afraid I felt. The first night home was the absolute worst. I cried like I never cried before. Your dad was my anchor that night, and I'll never forget that. I never missed a day. For 83 days, I woke up, got ready, and drove to the hospital. And I stayed there until it was time to go home and sleep. If they would have let me, I would have spent every night right next to your isolate. I was there for every milestone, for every gram you gained, and every bath. I refused to let nurses step in and do my job as your mother. That was my place, and I was going to take it with pride. I held you whenever they allowed me to. -to Skin-to-skin kangaroo care, they called it. I never felt closer to anyone or anything. You fit perfectly in between my breasts. Those 83 days were some of the darkest and some of the happiest moments of my life. There's nothing harder, in my opinion, than watching babies suffer day after day. And yet they are being taken care of to the best of anyone's abilities. Nothing made me want to be a good mom more than seeing those poor babies lay alone all day. I would never let you feel that alone. Going home every night and leaving you there never got easier. Not even after 83 days, it still felt like day one. I would cry on my way home every night, missing the most best beautiful part of me. You would literally sleep all day in my arms. And as soon as your head was placed in that bendy bumper, your pretty brown eyes would pop open as if you were begging me to stay. Finally, the day to go home, March 3rd, 2012. We showed up ready to take our big girl home. Walking out of the NICU was bittersweet. Obviously, I was beyond happy to have you leaving with me, but knowing how the mothers felt as they sit with their sick babies, I couldn't help but to feel despair. You are, to this day, my proudest, most amazing accomplishment. You made me stronger in a way you'll probably never know. And I thank you. Thank you for coming 12 weeks early. Thank you for holding on. Thank you for making me believe in miracles. I love you with all
0: of me. Oh, That's so sweet. And now I'm going to put you on the spot. If you could travel back in time and whisper something to that Diana in December 2011, what would you tell her? Oh, gosh. Hang on. I think that's all. Hang on. That's good. Sometimes that's all we can do is hang on, right?
1: Yep. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm like. I don't know if I could have even changed anything if I wanted to, so... Like I said, looking back now, 10 years later, I can, I'm i lucky. So just hang on.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. We have a lot of different awareness campaigns right now in our country. You can almost find an awareness campaign for anything. I think it's great because you can learn things that you didn't know. But when those happen, there's always a lot of statistics. And to me, it's really hard to get emotionally invested hearing statistics on a page. You know, they can be... Yeah jarring and they can be shocking and they can, you know, really surprise us. But to me, what I think people need to understand and know is that there's real people behind the statistics that there are mothers and fathers saying goodbye and leaving their babies in a NICU nursery. There's real life babies, like there's little tiny people you know, yeah. really tiny human beings that are left alone. You know, we have amazing healthcare and there's amazing nurses and people that help take care of them, but you know, they spend a lot of time alone, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're in these machines that are saving their lives and doing what they need to do to survive. But these little people really have to fight like crazy to, to survive what they're born into. It's an amazing lesson in fighting and survival and instinct and resilience. And I remember watching this all unfold and just thinking that, man, that that little girl was just born with such a fighting spirit, you know, like she was determined to survive. And there's all these little people that you know, are so little, like a pound, two pounds, and they're fighting for their lives in these rooms. And if there's anything that the rest of us can do, Like extend little gifts or donate money to places like the Ronald McDonald House, like March of Dimes. I mean, those are the people that we're helping. We're helping those little tiny babies and we're helping all those moms and dads who are leaving their babies and are doing everything they can to make sure they have a a fighting chance one of the negative
1: things I guess that I would associate with that experience was I would like be out and about with Lila when she finally came home. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, she looked like a normal baby. She was beautiful. She was tiny, but she was beautiful. You wouldn't know, mm-hmm. but she had this oxygen on her face. Mm-hmm. So people would, Oh, she's so cute, but what's wrong with her? Mm-hmm. And that used to every single time hit the nerve. Like, What do you mm-hmm. mean? What's wrong? Why does something have to be wrong with her? you know? Mm-hmm. And even if something was wrong with her, what well, makes you think as though you're entitled to the an answer? Right.
0: And, you know? know, these are, ba-
1: these are people in a restaurant, people in a store, like nobody I know, not a friend's friend, like just a stranger. Oh, you know, people say, oh, cute baby all the time to a stranger, but then to follow it up with, well, what's wrong with her? Mm. It's like, you know, that used to bug me a lot and awareness might cut back on that. Maybe that would be
0: nice. That's a really good point. So I want to talk about that. Yeah. You know, when we talk about how people can help and awareness, you're right. I I like that perspective because some people might think, I mean, I guess I'm giving them a lot of credit, but I wonder if they think they're being helpful. Do they think that's like showing care and concern by? Yeah, I don't think they mean it. And you, and you know, I don't know.
1: I might be real sensitive over my babies anyway. You know, I'm not saying people meant it in a malicious
0: way, but it was always an insensitive question nonetheless. Well, if you have a mother with a really little baby or even a bigger baby who has oxygen, obviously there's some sort of health challenge, right? And some sort of health crisis going on. So I think maybe just having that sensitivity to know that it's not just a casual question to say, Hey, what's wrong with your baby? I mean, when you're in the middle of the crisis, it's probably not the time to ask strangers that kind of question. So that's, that's good. This will be a PSA to all you people out there who think it's your business to ask parents (laughs) what's wrong with their kids in that way. Like stop. Don't do it. Don't do it. Just smile at them. Tell them their baby's beautiful and open the door for them. Buy them a coffee. Do something nice. Don't ask them what's wrong with their baby. Okay. Well, we'll work that PSA into the podcast.
1: I don't even remember how I used to answer that question. I remember one time I was with one of my girlfriends and somebody asked like, oh, what is, what is something? I forget what they asked, but her answer was she's a freaking dinosaur. And I was just like, (laughs) that was vicious, but. I'll let it go, you know, because they were just like being so invasive. And like, if you're going to ask that kind of question, then you're going to get that kind of answer. Oh, I
0: love it. That's a good one. Yeah.
1: I don't remember what their question was, but it's it's a dinosaur. And I was like, oh boy.
0: Oh my god. It was just like at Tully's, like just a restaurant. Oh, that's perfect. I like that answer. (laughs) That's funny. What advice would you give a mother who has just experienced a preterm birth or... You know, might be pregnant and having a risky, stressful pregnancy.
1: Well, I would say that the advice might be different if you're pregnant versus already delivered. Um, you know, it's easy to say don't stress, but when you're pregnant, stress is really the worst, right? Like, mm-hmm. so if you're pregnant and you're worried about these things, I don't know. It's it's very easy for me to say go with the flow. And I know a lot of people can't accept that answer, though. So I don't know what I would tell those people who can't accept that answer, because I don't know if there's anything you can do. You know, we talked about how you can't really prevent premature births in all cases. So you got to go with the flow. But once they're born, it's very easy, I think, to spiral and just kind of go crazy with the what ifs, what ifs. And especially because it's the doctor's job to tell you they can't tell you everything's, you know, unicorns and rainbows all the time. They have to give it to you straight. Mm. And I think it's important to remember a parent going through that, these kinds of stories like Lila's story, success stories. Mm. It's not all bad. Right.
0: You know, Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, this was awesome. Thank you for coming and and sharing your story with the world, with all of our listeners. I think it's really helpful. I know I learned a few things about what I can do to help People in crisis. It doesn't even, like you said, have to do with premature birth, but it's all about sharing this human experience and how we can just make the world a better place, a smaller place, and just care for each other. Cause we're all going to be going through stuff at some point in our lives. Right. And, you know, it's hard to avoid it completely for your whole life. So at some point, things like this will affect your families. And, you know, you've given me some, some things to think about and some good perspective. So thanks for tuning in today. And remember on November 17th, which is World Prematurity Day, the color is purple. So light it purple, people. Let's do our part to spread awareness, to raise money, help do what we can to prevent preterm births, to give every baby a fighting chance at the best possible life. And remember that there are real people behind every statistic. You know, I had some real aha moments, too, with Diana today. Don't go up to strangers and ask them what's wrong with their baby. Donate money to the Ronald McDonald House. It is such a great organization It's such a great resource. And also the March of Dimes. Check out their website. And third, the third thing I learned is that the smallest gestures and gifts can touch the heart of a person or a family in crisis. And you know, I'm a big prayer. My family, you know, we we believe in the power of prayer, and I think that's really important. And you can always do that if you believe in that. But also, these little gifts. I mean, what Diana told me today really opened my eyes. That you know, artwork with the baby's name, or a little knitted cap, or maybe booties, or a blanket, or or just a little token thing that touches the heart of a person or a family in crisis. It lets you know you see them. It lets you know you see them, that you are a witness to what they're going through. You're not going through it with them, but you're witnessing it. And that's what this podcast is all about, right? We're here to share. We're here to witness the human experience so that we can be connected, right? So November 17th, light it purple. Talk to somebody about what you learned listening to this podcast and. You know, I know the March of Dimes, their core issues that they're advocating for right now are equity and eliminating racial and ethnic health disparities and improving access to care through expanding critical health programs and closing the gaps in coverage. And the third thing that they focus on is prevention and helping spread awareness and education about some of the things that can uh, be a risk factor for preterm birth. So that's it for this episode. You can find more information and contact me by going to my website, kellybargabas.com podcast. If you got something useful by listening today, please subscribe, share, or review all there is. I'd appreciate it. Until we meet again, take care.